Thanks for downloading a 3CR podcast. 3CR is an independent community radio station based in Melbourne, Australia. We need your financial support to keep going. Go to www.3cr.org.au for more information and to donate online. Now stay tuned for your 3CR podcast. Communication Mixed Down. The show that takes a critical look at contemporary media. And explores the way we use communication to make sense of the world around us. From social media to citizen journalism. To the logo on the front of your favourite T-shirt. It's all part of the Communication Mixdown. Each week, Thursday, 6 to 6.30. Communication Mixdown. Cranking up. Right here on 3CR. Welcome to another edition of Communication Mixdown. I'm John Langer. And I'm Bronwyn Cran. And this week we're going to start the show with a bit of a quiz. Have you heard the term digital panopticon? What about something called the reputational economy? Mark Furlong works as an independent researcher and cultural commentator with a background in psychology. He's practiced in mental health and therapeutic settings. He's also been a lecturer at La Trobe and Deakin Universities, and he's currently connected with the Bouverie Centre here in Victoria. And most importantly for our show tonight, he's written an essay in a recent Arena magazine where he talks at length about the digital panopticon and the reputational economy. And we've invited him onto the show as our special guest this week because we think these ways of conceptualising the world have a lot to say about the process and consequences of communication in everyday life. Good good evening, Mark. Good evening, Bromlin and... Uh and uh, John, great to be with you. Can I just say I haven't uh, got a, a formal qualification in psychology. I've written a book on the psychology industry, um, but it's really worth uh, not pretending to be something that I'm, uh, I'm definitely not. Okay, yeah. apologies for that. No worries, no worries. Now, I, we want to turn to your essay and uh, in the Arena magazine, and uh, your essay covers a lot of ground we discovered. I want to start at the start. You use the example of the Uber driver and the passenger, and you also mention Airbnb and a few other online platforms. I wanted you to just describe these examples and to show us how they connect with the reputational economy. Well, if we take uh, a symbol, a single uh, example, the the one you mentioned about uh, Uber, in, before you can get an Uber car to come and pick you up, what you need to do is be registered and have uh, a status as an active uh, um, uh, consumer. To do that, you need to um, prove, like you do with Airbnb, that you are reputable, that you are a person of, in their terms, some kind of integrity. Um, the same with the Uber driver. Uh, the Uber driver can't just uh, grab that, uh, uh, that role. So each time one uh, gets into an Uber or gets out of an Uber, there's a, a, a calculation that's done about both con- the the driver and the uh, and the uh, and the passenger, and you you get rated so that there is a, an incentive to behave in a way that's regarded as appropriate within that means. Now, if you stack up all the different kinds of calculations that are done, for instance, uh, Airbnb or Airtasker or um, 
many of the different uh, um, peer rating systems, that can be added up to be what is one's kind of social score. Now, this is more nascent than it is completely total at the moment. Although in China, it's uh, worth noting that the social credit system they're building there will have an individual file on, what is it, 1.4, roughly 1.4 billion people where according to whether you pay your rates on time, whether you uh, are deemed to be a good citizen in lots of ways, you'll, you'll be allowed to get credit um, from a bank or, for instance, even be allowed on a, a plane or a, a train. So the reputational economy is the, uh, the aggregate score that one has in terms of one's uh, you know, kind of worth or disrepute. And uh, it's it's a coming thing. So getting credit, for instance, will be increasingly about one's um, the assessment of one's uh, social media presence as well as one's straight commercial presence. Uh, we'll, we'll come back to a few of those examples, actually, mm-hmm. to sort of unpick them a little bit more. But I wanted you to take us back to the 18th century because you, you talk about Jeremy Bentham and his design of a new type of prison. And I wanted you to... Th- Tell us a little bit about how that connects to the idea of the reputational economy. Oh, good. Um, I'm no expert on uh, this uh, this gentleman. He's a, a guy that uh, was probably brought to public prominence in uh, in a lot of the academic world through the work of Michel Foucault. Um, uh, Foucault was particularly interested in the way that uh, Bentham's idea could be uh, used as a way of um, thinking about how we self-censor ourselves. But Bentham was this uh, guy who designed a prison. It was never bricks and mortar, but what he designed was a prison where through a system of disguised mirrors, prisoners would not be aware when they were being observed and when they wouldn't be observed. So he had the idea that if people didn't know whether they were being observed but they thought they might be, they would self-censor. They would try and act in ways that were regarded as not problematic. And Bentham saw this as a way of having a system of social control in a prison without the use of overt force. So he conceived of it as a progressive step. And uh, you can see the, the, that angle in the same way that, for instance, some young people would say Uber really works beautifully because in Uber you... you can expect to be treated well and you expect to treat other people well. So you, you in the same way Bentham envisaged, you know you might be being observed, so you act in certain ways. And this was called, he called it the panopticon. He did, yeah. Okay. Can we fast forward to the 21st century again? Um, Mark, and I think a key point you're making, if I quote you back to yourself, quote, to a degree citizens have naturalised the idea that it's acceptable to be monitored, unquote. Um, And you give a bunch of examples, all of which are part of everyday life as we we currently live it. Um, Could you talk about that a little bit? Well, I think, sure, the the simplest example perhaps is uh, the loyalty cards uh, that one has when one goes to a supermarket. Uh, um, It sounds amicable, it sounds almost sweet, familiar. The the organisation wants you to be loyal, so um, they give you a card and I've not got one, but I understand it's probably the source of some discounts. But it's a way of tracking your individual consumption, Mm. not just how much you spend, but what you spend it on. So uh, that's, I guess, a a very simple example. But um, the the larger examples are Facebook or Amazon, the the big high-tech companies. They are 
in the most precise way and the most comprehensive way. They are tracking the the patterns of consumption, uh, what you click on, how long you click it for, what your history is, in order to target advertising. You know, the the saying I think in the industry is that if you're not paying for the uh, the, the service, you are. You are the product. You are not a, a, a customer. Yeah. Yes, I, I recall that that phrase in your in your article. Mm. Yeah. Look, and I'll just give you a, a personal my my own personal anecdote. This this afternoon, I go to the petrol station to fill up petrol, mm. and uh, the first thing they ask me, "Do I have a Meyer loyalty card?" So, I, well, I had to say no. Well, <laughs> did you feel stupid? Did you feel one down? Did you feel like one? is missing out in some way. I think that's the kind of the subjectivity, the kind of mood that you're that they're hoping to inculcate. Mm-hmm. Mm. And it was the absolutely first question. I mean, it was the first question that the guy at behind the counter asked me, "Do you have a loyalty card?" So, yeah, I mean, it's absolutely embedded in everyday life, I think as what as what you're trying to make the point. Well, I, I think it's uh, it's crept up on us in lots of ways. We we've known for a long time if you um, uh, have uh, applied for a loan from a bank, um, uh, they do a, a credit check on you. Now, it's not necessarily done by the bank. They can um, um, sub that out, subcontract that out to a third party. The third party will do some kind of credit check. A uh, similar thing happens when you uh, apply for um, um, uh, to rent a property. Uh, this will be checked. But the the technology that we're immersed in now is becoming so, uh, as I say, precise and comprehensive that it won't be long before we naturalise, it seems to me, a number of other things. For instance, uh, uh, to join um, uh, some babysitting clubs, one has to agree to have one's social media history vetted. Now, how is it vetted? In what way is it vetted? Um, uh, You you can envisage a a good proactive... uh, um, um, a solicitor saying to a, a, a person, before you marry such and such, as a prenup arrangement, mm. what you need to do is to check this person's history. Now, what are the criteria mm. that are being used in, in such searches? Mm. Uh, um, at, at best, at best, they're benign, but most likely they're capricious. Uh, then if we get into the, the larger realm, um, and I'm sorry if I'm going on too long no, about no. this, into the, the larger realm... The algorithms are being developed by fintech companies at the moment to give people a score before they're uh, given uh, uh, credit, for instance. Uh, um, now, on what basis are these uh, calculations being made? What are the... Uh, you do not, as far as I'm aware, you do not have any access to the machinery of these things. They are in-house, commercial in confidence, uh, um, uh, calculated, calculating... Uh, procedures but on what basis are they being done we don't know it's not being done in an academic sense where there are uh, control groups that you can Mm. check where there's Mm. a reliable methodology that's being used so this is an interesting territory that we're Mm -hmm. we're starting Mm -hmm. to to drift along and and also i guess the thing and we'll come back to this too is 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 how how aware people are of this and look at that that's a question i want to i want to postpone but just just foreshadow it Something else that's uh, interesting from your article is you quote you you use Anna Funder as a she she's a, a Australian writer and she wrote a book called Stasi Land and it was basically a study uh, her writing was about 
how East Germany had a mass program of embedding state informers through all levels of civil society. And I was wondering, what's the relevance of this kind of thing to the digital culture that you're currently talking about and the one we inhabit every day? Oh, that's a a terrific question. It looks like they're chalk and cheese in lots of ways. One's um, in the Stasiland example that uh, Anna Funder wrote about, and it's now, um, for a lot of people, it would seem like prehistory. It's going back to before 1989. But in East Germany, there was a very very thorough uh, state-sponsored regime where neighbours would spy on other neighbours where you, your brother-in-law, perhaps even your uncle, might even be your brother, might be on the state payroll. There were accounts that something like one in eight people, mm-hmm. one in ten, one in six, who knows, were capable of, uh, of, uh, of providing information. If you said something against the regime, if you even implied you weren't enthusiastic, that could be... Um, something that could be reported to the authorities. So it was up for all sorts of scamming. If you didn't like your neighbour, you might put them down that way. Mm-hmm. But the idea there was it really censored people's behaviour. So you were extremely careful what you said to whom, even your intimates. Now, the the parallel there is that in a digital world, and I'm not sure some um, uh, listeners uh, would have watched uh, a, a, a very troubling uh, um, series called Black Mirror. In Black Mirror, there's a, um, a, a, an envisaging of a pretty dystopian future, and one of the uh, uh, the examples in one of the episodes, I can't remember exactly which one, was two people, a customer and a and a client, being very chummy in this tizzy way about I put in a like about you, I like the coffee you made, and the the, the guy that made the coffee put in a like about the the customer. You're very friendly. Now, this was all very well if it wor- is working nicely, but if somebody then can anonymously um, put in a, a bad report about someone, then the, 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 the possibilities of it becoming quite spectral. Um, you've got to be really on your best behaviour in case, for some reason or other, you might be seen to be out of order, in which case reports get put to you that get centralised in some kind mm, of way. Mm. So there is a parallel between the, the pre-digital version of Stasiland and the possibilities of the... You've got to be really careful. You don't want anyone not to like you. You don't want to be unfriended. Mm, you mm. can be ostracised, maybe even really um, materially disadvantaged if you uh, aren't seen to be playing the game well. This might be a good time for a break. Let's hear this and we'll get back with Mark Furlong. Come along to the Ruby Hunter Foundation Benefit Concert at the Toad Hotel on Saturday the 4th of August at 8pm featuring a deadly lineup including The Bits, Dave Arden and the Cucamata Band, Carol Carpany, Will Coyote, Clusterfunk and The Seabirds alongside mystery band The Public Opinion Six. Saturday, 4th of August, Toad Hotel, 8pm, a Ruby Hunter Foundation benefit concert, a 3CR supporter.
This is Communication Mixdown, and if you've just joined us, we're talking with Mark Furlong. He's an independent researcher and social commentator, and we've been discussing digital culture and the reputational economy and how they're all implicated, how we're all implicated in it in one way or another, whether we want to be or not. Mark, um, your critique of psychology gives you a special angle of vision if I can put it that way, into the dark side of digital culture. And um, you seem to have very serious reservations about Facebook and the way it's become normalised, just part of the weave of what we are in the world. And I wondered if you could talk about that. There's this idea of what you call attenuated mutuality um, in relation to health and well-being and mental health. There's, you there's, could talk about that? Sure. There's, there's quite a bit uh, um, there. I think the... Um, perhaps the first thing to say is that I'm not the only one, as you know, that's in lots of ways critical of Facebook. The, the first thing that I remember reading was a guy called Tom Hodgen- Hodgkinson who wrote a piece in The Guardian 10 years or so ago called Why I Hate Facebook. And what I'm uh, trying to do in, uh, in, um, in this particular uh, piece is to talk about some of the ways that Facebook has embedded itself as a social utility it is not just a clip-on. In lots of ways, it's very difficult not to be on Facebook. Um, I'm not on Facebook, and there are all sorts of disadvantages to uh, to that. But Facebook is, in lots of ways, I think, able to be seen as a as a predatory organisation. The recent uh, um, publicity around the way that something like 50 million accounts were uh, given to Cambridge Analytica and used in a way that was very, very... Uh, problematic um, uh, is one aspect of the Facebook uh, uh, problem and uh, you wouldn't want to be a Facebook shareholder at the moment. They lost uh, 1.3, sorry, um, they lost 130 or so billion dollars on their uh, on their value just a week or so ago. Mm. But the, the issue that you're raising about the attenuated mutuality, I think there's a, a way of thinking where Facebook and other social media platforms are changing the way we think about ourselves and the way we think about our relationships. For instance, the idea that one can, um, and this is just one of the examples, one can be totally in control. Now, if I don't like what somebody says to me, I can just drop out. That is not something that's so easy to do uh, in face-to-face interaction. Uh, A guy called Jeff Sharp used to talk about the notion of presence that was involved in face-to-face work. Something like 80%, according to a, a lot of research, of information is non-verbal. It's mm-hmm. about tones of voice, it's about body posture, it's about the physical context, it's about the uh, exchanges that are happening that aren't purely semantic. Um, when we are doing text-based communication, and not all Facebook is text-based, of, of course, we are having a particular kind of intimacy with others. But I think it is not reasonable to say it's the only or the best kind. Well, one could argue that there are many things that are advantages with Facebook. Uh, lots of people do. It's possible to have um, very quick um, connections with people that uh, maybe you went to school with that um, you haven't seen for ages. But what is the overall quality of the connection? And some of the recent research, and it really is from very reputable mobs, like I quote a, the Harvard Business Review talking about that social networks, face-to-face social networks, have they promote, they protect uh, health and well-being. 
um, the amount of time one's spending on Facebook, they report in a, in a fairly recent uh, piece, is detrimental, is actually um, having the opposite effect. One is in abeyance waiting to be um, liked. One is um, uh, careful about what one says maybe or one can be unfriended. So it's a brutal kind of connection. Mm-hmm. And that's that's in lots of ways, I think, quite problematic. Mm-hmm. The other Indeed. thing, just just uh, j- to jump in here in relation to your your article, I thought it was a very interesting observation you made about the ABC and the fact that they're now encouraging. In fact, it's it's virtually uh, naturalized that you connect as an audience person through Facebook to make comments and so on. I thought that it, was a very interesting observation. Well, it really has been naturalised. It, it is an astonishing phenomenon. I mean, the idea that we conduct our relationships in the context of commerce. Facebook is a commercial enterprise. The idea that the ABC, for instance, on Life Matters or um, virtually any of their shows, they say, contact us via Facebook. Mm-hmm. Contact us via this party that's trying to make money out of the relationship we're all having. Mm-hmm. I mean, that's a, that's a bizarre idea. Not just the ABC. I mean, it's all sorts of institutions. Political parties now like to be liked on Facebook and, you know, so it's, um, yeah, it's so naturalised. I think even 3CR has a a contact point with um, with Facebook. That's what I mean about it. It's a social utility. It's becoming embedded in. And Mm. even 10 years ago, Facebook spokespersons were, Facebook had something like, uh, 10 years ago, something like 50 or 60 million users. Now it's got 2.2 billion. But even 10 years ago, a spokesperson said, this will be really hard to change because we are really hard to get out of your life. <laughs> mm. Now, Mark, someone, someone listening to our conversation uh, might be saying, well, that's life. You know, let, let, that, that's the way it is in the 21st century. How do you respond to that? Oh, I think that's a, a really good comment. Uh, there are lots of advantages. There are lots of real positive possibilities in not just Facebook, but in uh, the uh, the digital world. Uh, it's possible for people, uh, for instance, who were previously isolated, maybe uh, stigmatised. If you're, a, for instance, a, a young a young kid uh, growing up in, a, in an isolated conservative country town and you wanted to explore your sexuality, well, the digital world gives you a way to do it, which mm-hmm. is much, much uh, less risky than, uh, than previously. So it's not about there's good and there's, there's bad. There's um, positive aspects and uh, there are not. But what are the switch points? What are the circumstances within which um, our immersion, our migration into the digital world is, is problematic? There are many, many critiques of uh, uh, of that. So yes, it is part of our our um, everyday world. But I think it's worth pausing and uh, being critical about uh, um, about the way we're being stampeded into things. Yeah. So, Mark, do you think there's any way out or around or under or how to dodge the digital bullet? You're dodging the digital bullet. You're not on Facebook. Oh, well, I can't. Nobody can completely dodge it. I mean, the the number of cookies whenever you open something up, we're all being tracked. Facebook uh, mightn't have me as a formal client, but they've got an account with all of the links that uh, people that... Uh, that uh, are on Facebook, have with me, etc. I, I don't think there's any way out or round or, or through, as you put it, uh, but we need to, uh, if we can, find ways to, uh, to deal with uh, the digital world uh, uh, creatively. There are many advantages to it, but uh, the idea that we are becoming 
um, we're expected to be sheep. Um, this is the, the, the theory of behaviour that Peter Thiel and the other high-tech gurus have. They think that we are like a flock and they are the leaders. And uh, I want to object to that. Uh, um, lots of people do. There's a beautiful, fabulous book, uh, uh, Move Fast and Break Things, which is uh, Jonathan uh, Taplin's uh, account of high-tech. And he talks about that being, that being Facebook's uh, motto, Move Fast and Break Things. I think some things are worth hanging on to. The quality of our connections with others is uh, a really precious thing and that's my long-term interest, uh, the quality of, the accountability of our connections with others. And is Facebook, is uh, Amazon, is any of this, is it contributing to us having robust ethical relationships? Uh, I'm not sure it often is, yeah. Sounds like a good place to finish at this point. Something a little bit more optimistic, yes? Yes. And, uh, Mark, thank you very much for being on Communication Mixdown. It's been an absolute pleasure. Thank you indeed for the invite. And we've been talking with Mark Furlong. He's an independent researcher and cultural commentator currently connected with the Bouverie Centre here in Victoria. His essay in Arena Magazine number 153 is entitled The Digital Panopticon. And Mark's most recent book is Resizing Psychology in Public Policy and the Private Imagination, published by Palgrave in 2016. We'll put all the links as well as the podcast of this show on the 3CR Communication Mixdown site. And that's all from us this week. Communication Mixdown will be back again next Thursday. We'll be speaking to you then. <laughs> 